and they need additional counseling, they need additional help. I'm not saying any of that uh, is wrong. I'm just saying that many times we just don't want to trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So as we talk about managing life, I don't want it to turn into some system and you have to subscribe for $29.95 a month. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell a program. It's just some simple, practical ways I hope that will help us in understanding how to manage life God's way. That God has given to us all that we need for life and for godliness according to the power, according to his glorious power. And according to the, the, the virtue that he uh, makes, develops in us as we know and love him and serve him. So Ephesians 5 and verse 15. See then that ye walk how? Circumspectly. Older English word, we don't use it a whole lot. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools. So in other words, if you don't walk circumspectly, you're more than likely to be what? A fool. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So today we're going to look at in this series on managing life God's way, managing life according to the Bible. We're going to focus on this word or this idea of being watchful, of watching. So we know that human reason is limited. Limited human reason is our only source for making choices unless we exercise faith in God, unless we believe the Bible, unless we trust the Lord as our Savior and believe God's word and live accordingly, what are we left to? Figuring out life on our own, doing it our way. We can get into all the different systems of thought and philosophies, the humanism and the secularism. And where has that led us to this point in our world today, where personal autonomy, expressive individualism, now the prevailing worldview is critical theory, and all the personal autonomy and expressive individualism that accompanies that. That's where man is left when he ignores God, rejects God, and rejects God's word. So the resource for our faith is the word of God. The resource for our faith is the word of God. In John chapter number one, it's interesting, Jesus is calling the disciples. And he mentions to Nathaniel that before Nathaniel came to him, Jesus saw him under the tree. And Nathaniel was astonished. How did you know me before I ever came and, and, and met you? And Nathaniel makes a great statement about Christ, identifying him as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus told Nathaniel in that passage that he would see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Isn't that an interesting way that Jesus answered Nathaniel? I'm sure in some ways it brought Nathaniel back to what Old Testament event? Jacob, yeah, exactly, Jacob and the angels. So in some ways I'm wondering if Jesus wasn't making Nathaniel refer to the Old Testament in Jacob's ladder. But what was Jesus getting Nathaniel to understand? 
the things that he was going to learn, the things that he was going to need the most, were going to be revealed to him by God. He wasn't going to get them any other way. He wasn't going to get them under some Greek or Jewish rabbi, Greek philosopher, Jewish rabbi. He wasn't going to get them by the culture, by human reasoning. He said, Nathaniel, he said, you're basically, he said, you are a smart guy. You are a individual who has keen discernment. You already have recognized some things about who I am. And obviously even that was of the Lord. But he was saying to Nathaniel, you are about to learn things. You are about to receive truth that would not come from human sources. It would not come from human reasoning, human logic, human philosophy. You are going to be a disciple of mine and you are going to receive the truth that comes from God and God alone. He would know the truth, the revelation of God. He would know the living truth, Jesus Christ, who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He would receive what only God could reveal to him. And he wouldn't be able to discover these truths on his own. That's what a lot of people think they can do, right? They think that they can discover truth on their own. They can plumb the depths of some great philosopher or dig into some library. They can expound on some great philosophies. And isn't that what the Greek philosophers used to do? They used to get together and they used to talk about all their arguments. <laughs> and, 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 and even Paul alluded to that at Mars Hill. And he claimed to be so smart. And you have all of these idols and altars and you have all these markers and memorials for all these smart people. But even you recognize and he mentions about the unknown God, right? And he says the unknown God that you're not acknowledging truthfully is the one true and living God. And I'm here to tell you who the one true and living God is. And the person of Jesus Christ who you must confess as Lord, who you must repent of your sin and trust him in saving faith. So what about these texts? We know that Psalm 119.105 says... Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But what does Psalm 36 and verse 9 say? Anybody want to take a quick minute and turn to Psalm 36 and verse 9? Tell us what that text, this text, Psalm 36 and verse 9, reveals about the word of God. I forgot to mention about the lesson sheet, so hopefully everybody got one. Thank you to Ray and Nat for passing those out. But uh, maybe, you, maybe you missed the lesson sheet. But uh, I don't know where they're at now, if there's any extras. Still a few floating around. Ray, I think there might be another one down here who needs one. But uh, if you want to follow along on the outline. Who has Psalm 36 and verse 9? Uh, Dan? For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see life. So we see the word of God is the fountain of life. And in thy word we, what? See light. So fountain of life and God's word is light. So we see that aspect of light that is repeated regularly throughout Scripture. What about Psalm 119 and 130? Psalm 119 and 130? Psalm 119 and 130. Anybody have this one wants to read that? Carolyn? So the entrance of God's word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. 
Just a couple of texts. We could go to many other places. But we see the Word of God as light, as giving understanding, as a fountain of life. I don't know who B. Manzel Ramsey is, but this is similar to a hymn that we sing, Teach Me Thy Way, Lord. And this individual wrote this poem, Teach Me Thy Way, O Lord, Teach Me Thy Way. Thy guiding grace afford, teach me thy way. Help me to walk aright, more by faith, less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light, teach me thy way. It's a metaphor that's easy for us to grasp and to understand, that the word of God is a lamp, is a light. We know how important light is in so many different ways. So we need the light of God's word to direct our paths. To show us the way. We can't do it on our own. We can't manage life on our own. We're not going to know the way by our own self-discovery. We need the Word of God. We need the truth of the Word of God. God's Word is our guidebook, in a sense, for life. But what about this theme that we're looking at today of watchfulness or watching? Well, doesn't watching, watchfulness, doesn't it often involve time? Back in Ephesians 5, in verse 15, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And again, it's obvious the days are evil. Evil men are waxing worse and worse. It's very obvious. So all the more reason to be redeeming the time, to be walking circumspectly. So the word circumspectly, it's not a word that we use a lot. It's not a common word in our modern English but it has to do with walking diligently with an alertness. I like to use the illustration of a cat walking on a shelf with a bunch of little decorative types of figurines or something on that, that shelf. My sister's cat years ago, she was able to navigate up above the door. My, my sister had a shelf above, I think it was, actually it was above the window, and my sister's cat would walk along that shelf above the window, and my sister had a bunch of decorative things up there, and it was amazing to me that that cat could walk along that shelf and hardly ever knock anything off. And we have a dog that tries to be a cat sometimes and tries to navigate certain areas around our house, and things go crashing to the floor. Yesterday, he broke something, and we were able to find the, the piece later, but he's not very circumspect. He's he's a dog in a china shop or something, however that goes. But cats are are really good at being able to walk circumspectly. And that's kind of the idea here. We're walking diligently. We're walking alertly. We are understanding that there is foolishness that abounds. There is a need to redeem the time, that there's evil everywhere. So we have to walk very alertly, very carefully. If you've ever spilled or broken glass and it's all over the kitchen floor and you're trying to get to the broom or the vacuum and you're walking very circumspectly and you're making sure that you are alert so you don't get your your foot cut open. That's the idea here. Obviously, it's going to deal with discernment. But in this circumspect walking, faithfully, diligently, alertly, there's going to be things that we have to avoid 
which means that we have to make very good use of our time. Because it's not in the Bible. I realize that it's not a scripture chapter and verse. But what's the old saying? Idle hands are the devil's workplace or workshop. And we know how distracting the world is today and how many distractions there are. And the smorgasbord, the buffet of sin is all right there, easily accessible. So many things 25, 30 years ago weren't so accessible. Now they're fingertips away. There are a few clicks or a few buttons away. It's everywhere. The sewer is wide open, it seems like, in the streets nowadays. So redeeming the time. What is this all about? Well, let's talk about time in our watchfulness, in our watching, in our walking circumspectly as we redeem the time we ask, first of all, the question, is God bound by time? A thousand years is but as what? One day in the Lord's eyes. Now, does that mean that every time the scriptures say a thousand years, that is exactly one day in God's... It, it's, a, it's a phrase. It's a... I don't know what, what the word would be. Colloquialism? or it, It's the inspired word of God, but it's explaining that God is not bound by time. A thousand years can go by in, in, in God's timetable. A thousand years can go by, and it's like for us just one day. 24 hours, you think about it, it goes by pretty quickly, especially when we're really busy. I know there are periods of time where we're bored. And, did you know that boring is actually a more modern word, that there were days where they didn't use the word boredom? It's really more of a modern phenomenon because we have so much leisure time. I was um, interested in this when I was... A school principal because kids would always talk about bored and school is boring and all that and I got to doing a little bit of studying on, on boredom and it's actually a newer phenomenon um, it's actually a choice you can choose to be bored they're really in our day and age no reason to be bored when you think about it anyway that's a whole different topic but is God bound by time no he's not why did God create time? What is time? How do we define time? We talk about seconds and hours and weeks and months and years, and there's a cycle with the earth and the seasons and the moon and, and all that, and that's, that's fascinating, and all that is part of God's order and design. But I like how H. Joseph Miller, in his book, he defined time as the finite context or the definable limits of God's creation. God put time into place for us. Did God really need to rest on the seventh day? Was really God all worn out? Whew, that's six days of creation. I'm just exhausted. I don't know if I have any energy for... No, he was maintaining and sustaining the universe after six days of just speaking the word and it came into existence. God was not like, oh, I'm all tapped out now. I'm going to have to go rest for... A day to get my energy back. No, he was still completely 100% God in every way, even after just speaking the word and creating even man out of the dust of the ground and performing surgery on Adam and having uh, and, and creating Eve. Why did God rest on the seventh day? As an example, because he knew we would need the rest. Didn't Jesus say that God made the Sabbath for man? Not the Sabbath for God. He made it for man. He knew we would need the rest. He knew that that was part of the life cycle, the daily cycle, the evening and the morning. And 
If you've ever worked a second or a third shift, you know how with your body clock and the way the majority of the world operates, the second and third shift are brutal, aren't they? I've done some late night and some third shift work, and it's like the whole rest of the world is operating on a different timetable. And there are internal clocks. We have an internal biological clock. So some of you are up at the same time every morning, no matter what's going on, even if it's a day off or a vacation, because there's an internal rhythm that God created. That's a gift from God. Time is a gift from God. It's also a responsibility. It's a stewardship that we have been given. He created it for us, for our good. And ultimately, God owns our time and controls it. We have to remember that. It is ultimately God's. That speaks volumes to what we do with our time, to how we use our time. What about Solomon? Well, he talks about time. Three ways in the book of Ecclesiastes. He talks about the futility of time from a purely sinful human perspective. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because God allows Solomon and all of his wisdom to have a perspective from just a man-centered, man-focused view, and then he'll shift to God's view. And we see that back and forth in Ecclesiastes. It's a little bit confusing sometimes. It's a little bit of a challenge to work through. But the book of Ecclesiastes is fascinating. And there are times where Solomon says, all this is just futile. What's the word that he uses often in, in Ecclesiastes? Vain. Yeah, vanity. And isn't that the way some people live? They try to get everything they can out of life in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places, and they throw up their hands and they say, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's all vanity. It's all futile. What does an atheist and an agnostic say? I, I, I sometimes use the illustration, but what do they say to someone who's losing a child down at Riley Hospital due to some disease, cancer, or some other kind of disorder? Do they go up to them and pat them on the back and... Give them a hug and say, well, thank you for your child's contribution to this cycle of evolution. Hopefully it'll make it better for the next people in the next stage of evolution. What, what hope? What? There's no hope. There's nothing. There, there's no purpose. And that's where Solomon says, if we don't have God and we don't see God's view and we don't see God's ways and we don't accept God's word and, and live according to his truth, then life is futile. Instant karma's going to get you, going to hit you right in the face. Right? That old song, Pull Yourself Together, Darling, it's the dawn of the human race, something like that. And we all shine on. Really? We, we all shine on. Remember that old Nike commercial? Some of, you are, some of you are too young for that. You can probably find it on YouTube. But the old Nike commercial, I don't know who was the, the they were probably on LSD when they wrote the song, right? It was probably, What? Oh, was it okay? Was the Beatles okay? And we all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun. Really, I'm I, because instant karma is going to get you. It's a vanity of vanities. Life is futile, worthless. What hope is there? We might as well booze it up, shoot it up, sniff it up. All the immorality, right? That's that's what. We are living in that. When you're told from the time you're in kindergarten that you're just an animal, maybe a little bit higher life form, and then you hear some of the garbage coming out of the World Economic Forum and that crazy lady sneezing on all their heads and getting a standing ovation. 
I just, that's what life does then. If you don't order your life according to God, according to his word, according to the truth, then life's futile. What purpose is there? Maybe we can contribute to this cycle of evolution. That maybe is the best we can do. How sad. He even goes to fatalism. All events are predetermined, nothing we can do about it. I've met people like this. Oh, nothing I can do. I can't have any effect as a parent. I can't have any influence at work. I can't, I'm just stuck. And whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And that fatalistic attitude is very, very damaging. And again, it's that whole, and I understand the Christmas song is well-meaning and it's fun and all that, I get it. But we'll all get together if the fate allows if you think about that, what is that really saying? Through the years, we'll all be together, right? As the fate allows. What, who's fate? What's fate? Some impersonal force? Now you're into what, Star Wars? You've got the good side and the bad side. <laughs> you're into some new age spiritism where you've got to appease the gods. <laughs> where does this go? So if we don't believe God and his word, then life becomes futile, time is a waste, pointless, weariness, all events are predetermined, there's a fatalistic view, or if we believe God, trust his word, accept him by faith, turn from our sin, and live for God and his will, then we can live by faith, a confident responsibility for choices under divine providence. Not some impersonal fate or blind luck, but understanding that ultimately my times are in God's hand. Questions or comments so far? Okay, Ecclesiastes 12. What, what does Solomon come to as he comes to the end of the book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? As he's thinking about these aspects of time, he gets to the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes 12. Verse number 1. What time-related terms? Ecclesiastes 12, 1, 13, and 14. He says, remember now whom? Thy creator. Remember who made you. He made you in his image. He made you with purpose, made you with dignity, made you for his glory, ultimately. So, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. He's saying, remember your creator now. Because there are going to be days, many years, if God gives them to you down the road, you're going to be looking back. Do you want to have a life of regrets and shame? And throw up your hands in futility? Or do you want to remember your creator now in the days of your youth and maximize the time for God? Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What does he say? Two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What does he say? Redeem the time, because there's going to be a day of accounting. There's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day when there's a reckoning. 
So remember your creator and live for God. Fear God and obey his commandments. So what is our ultimate stewardship responsibility to time and all of the other areas of life? What is our, steward, what is our ultimate stewardship responsibility? What's that? Obedience. Fear God and obey. Fear God and obey. And then what should be our motivation for watchfulness? Verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 12. For God shall bring every work into judgment. There's going to be an accounting. How have we watched? How have we walked? Have we walked circumspectly? Or have we just been going through life, knocking everything off the shelf, making a big mess of our life and everybody else's that we influence? What are we doing? Are we redeeming the time? Are we buying it back and using it for God's glory? Or is it just wasted? And there are downtimes. There are times for rest. God knows we need them. But we can't just be workaholics and just live for productivity. We dealt with that in the book of James last Sunday even. And the fact that we can even get so busy that we forget about God and we become all caught up in our own productivity. It's not that we just think busyness is godliness. It's not that we just, um, I don't know, stay productive and busy all the time, become workaholics. But nor should we be lazy and unproductive. We need to have good work ethic. But we need to be serving. We need to be redeeming the time, maximizing the time as good stewards, knowing there's a day of reckoning coming. Ecclesiastes 3, we see Solomon's understanding of God's timing for mankind. We know this passage probably very well. Ecclesiastes 3. What does Solomon, by the inspiration of God, what, what does he give us in Ecclesiastes 3? He gives us kind of a summary of what life is like, what, what happens in life. A time to kill, a time to heal. Actually, let's go all the way back to verse 1. A time, there's, to everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, die, plant, pluck up, Kill, heal, break down, build up, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, cast away stones, gather them together, embrace, time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, time to lose, time to keep, time to cast away, to rend, to sow, keep silence, to speak, to love, war, I'm sorry, to love, hate, war, peace. What's he kind of saying there? Life is made up of all kinds of different experiences, all kinds of different things happen. In our lives, time. So what is he ultimately saying? What can we derive from Ecclesiastes 3? What is Solomon's understanding? Well, we can kind of summarize it to maybe make it a little easier. Time to die. Or excuse me, a time to be born, a time to die, and a time to plant. He kind of summarizes it all. And he says, ultimately what? God is in control. God owns our time. God chose our beginning date. And God knows when we're going to die. Then what should we be doing in between that birth date and that death date? Doing what God wants us to do. God's will. Redeeming the time. All of these different things are going to happen. Our life may have all of these different events and all these different times, all these different circumstances. 
But no matter what's going on, God is in control. We ultimately must trust him. We must ultimately obey him. We must do his will. We must redeem the time. So, Jeremiah 1 and verse number 5. What can we glean from Jeremiah 1 and verse number 5? As we continue in this understanding of time and birth and death and the time in between, Jeremiah 1 and verse 5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a what? A prophet unto the nations. So what does, what does that say? What are, what are we to, to glean from this? Yes, Sam. God has a task for us to do. God has a will for our lives. Derek? Yes. We're not here as some random blob of tissue that can be snuffed out through the form of murder called abortion. Right? But that's what, I mean, that's one of the main platforms of the Democrat Party. Did you hear our president this past week? He came right out, made a statement. One of the main platforms is the murder of unborn children. They're going to run on murder. He came right out and made it a big statement. Not that we weren't surprised by that, but he came right out and made it one of the chief platforms, chief goals. We are going to reverse the, the Dobbs decision. They're going to run on the murder of unborn children because that is a blob of tissues, of cells. Even if, even if they do regard it as human life, they say it's not worth living. How sad. But this is, if we don't believe what God says about life, about time, about purpose, meaning, dignity, made in God's image, then what are we left with? Back to the very beginning of the lesson, human reason. Human reason says, I don't want that child. It's going to keep me from having money. It's going to keep me from having all the Luxuries of life, that child is going to weigh me down, hold me back. It's going to be a ball and chain. And besides, it's not fair that God made women to have children. That was not fair. God should have never, they should just be like men, and there should be an equality of non-uterine people. This is the nonsense that we hear. But Jeremiah is very clear. God has a purpose. Nat, and then Hank. I know. Yeah, that, that's what, it just it angers you. That he could win on that. He could come out and ultimately, point blank, say, we are going to murder babies in their mother's womb. And that might be a winning issue. Shows that there's a real problem about these very issues in our culture today. Hank? Right, but you can murder a pregnant woman and be charged with two, yeah, two, two murders. Yeah, the contradictions are all over the place. We could go to Isaiah 64, 6 as well. I know we don't have a lot of time here. Isaiah 64, 6. 
how does Isaiah 64.6 describe this time to die truth? I don't know if anybody had turned there already, but Isaiah 64, verse number 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It's a sobering thought, but if we're sinners, and our righteousness are filthy rags, then we need help. <laughs> what does it say? We need help. We need God. We need redemption. What about um, 1 Peter 1 and verse 24? 1 Peter 1 and verse 24. I don't know if anybody turned there. 1 Peter 1 and verse 24. For all the flesh is as grass, the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. Again, it's a sobering reminder that life is short. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. And... We have to use this time that God's given us for His glory. What could preempt death and shorten our lifespan? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. What is that event? They're after. And we look forward to that day. Even so come Lord Jesus. And we're told to occupy until He comes. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And we look forward to that. We listen for the trumpet and the voice of the archangel. Psalm 90 and verse 12. What... Did Moses say we need to learn in Psalm 90 and verse 12? Teach us to number our days. Maximize the time. Maximize the time for God's glory, for doing God's will. I've got a quote up here. I've adapted it, kind of altered it, edited it a little bit. But God will not do for us what he has already given us the strength to do for ourselves. Okay, I mean that in the sense that do we still have to get up, take a shower, put on our clothes, get ready for the day, go off to work? God's given us the strength to do that. As many days as he gives us the strength to do that, we should be doing that, right? Whatever it is, whether it's going off to work or working at home or whatever the place is. When Peter was released from the prison, God threw open the prison doors and the angel said, Peter, put on your coat, put on your shoes and walk out. He didn't just airlift him. He could have. And there are times where he's done that with people, but he didn't do that. He said, Peter, put on your coat, put on your shoes and walk. God had given him the strength to do that. That was part of his job, even though God had done a miracle and threw open the prison doors. So there are disciplines that we have to be doing that God has already given us the strength to do and commanded us to do. So Psalm 37 We don't have time to go to all these passages. But in Psalm 37, we read that there is the need for us to commit our ways to the Lord. And then we know the verse probably very well. In Psalm 37, I believe it's verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall what? Give thee the desires of thine heart. So as we delight in the Lord, what does he do? He puts within our hearts what? Godly desires, exactly. The key is the delighting. The key is the committing ourselves to the Lord. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight thyself in the Lord. Commit thy way unto the Lord. 
He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Cease from anger. A lot of imperatives there. As we delight in him, he implants within us godly desires. So we're doing what God's will is, and it's what we desire to do because we're delighting in him. Matthew 6, 30-33, what should our priority be? We're to seek what? First, the kingdom of God, and then all these things shall be added unto you. What are these things? Raiment, food, necessities. What does God say? I'll take care of your needs. Now, now the American dream is to have the government take care of our needs so all the money we make on the side we can spend on our luxuries. Isn't that the American dream now? Somehow get a government program to take care of all of our needs, all of the, the mortgage and housing and food and live off of the government and then we, we've replaced God with government in many cases. I'm not saying that there aren't times where we need some assistance, but government's trying to be God, aren't they? Trying to set themselves up in God's place. We see that in a lot of different areas. But God says, seek first his kingdom. Trust him. He'll take care of our needs. Then all these things shall be added unto you. Our first priority must be God. What about the phrase, take no thought? What's that? Don't be concerned. Don't worry. Don't fret. I know as, as a husband, as a father, sometimes I get overly worried and concerned because I want to provide for my home. I want to make sure uh, the kids have what they need. You know, we as maybe sometimes as fathers, because of the way God made us as the leaders in our home, sometimes that burden weighs heavy on us, right? And we want to make sure that we're providing, we're protecting, we're doing everything we can do. And we can get overly worried about that and fret when God says, and it's for, it's for all of us, Sometimes I think as a, as a dad, as a father, that weighs heavy maybe on us as uh, the, the lead in the home, the head of the home. But all of us are to not worry, not fret, be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4 says. So seek first the kingdom of God and trust him to take care of these things. And don't worry, he will take care of our needs. But we still do what we need to do. We still do what God has already given us the strength to do for ourselves and trust him. So that brings us to priorities. Our priorities. Number one priority should be the, the kingdom of God, seeking first kingdom of God. So God's will and God's work. We should be involved for Christ, be inviting people to Christ, and, being and be instructing people about Christ. So we are to be involved for the Lord. We're to be evangelizing, and we're to be discipling. We're to be instructing others, helping others in their walk with the Lord. So the focus of our family life, our personal life, our vocational life, and our recreational life, every part of our life should be what? To serve Christ, ordered by the Lord, ordered by His Word. He has called us with a holy calling. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Our calling in Christ. We have a set-apartness to our life. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We're sojourners, pilgrims on this earth. We are here in every way to serve the Lord. So we only have a little bit of time left here. 
wish we had time to go to all of these verses. So then, in ordering our life, in seeking first the kingdom of God, what should be a fairly easy conclusion to draw? That if God has a place for his people to meet on a regular basis, and he has set aside one day a week for that, and he has called men to lead that assembly, then shouldn't it just make sense that we should be where on Sunday? At church. At church. We see the priority. We see the principle. We see the command. We see the pattern. We could go to Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Hebrews 10. We know that one very well. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But we see the first day of the week. We see the early church meeting, assembling regularly on the first day of the week. So we don't physically keep the Sabbath like the Old Testament law prescribed. But the principle, the priority, the pattern, the command is all there in the New Testament. And it should be just a natural byproduct result of seeking first the kingdom of God. Of having God's will and God's way first. Then it should be natural and normal and a desire to be in church, to be with God's people. And to serve one another and labor together. And iron sharpening iron and provoking one to love and to good works. So then what about some practical things about our schedule? Inventory our schedule, evaluate our schedule, eliminate things that are unnecessary, that are ungodly, that are sinful, or distractions, or weights, and then schedule according to the priorities of the will of God. We had, if we had time, we already looked at James 4 in last Sunday's message, John 5 and verse 30 as well. But, whoops, went too far, there we go. But we know that God is ultimately in control and sovereign over our lives. But it is much easier to accept the Lord's will if we manage our time by biblical principles and exercise good stewardship in honor of the Lord's gift of life and time. So watchfulness, watching. Any closing comments or questions? Diane? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. There's a reality to a peace that passes all understanding. Yeah. Amen. Anybody else? Derek? Yeah, great point. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. There's an order and design and a purpose and a plan, and we try to interrupt that. And there's consequences for doing so. Great point. Good. All right, we'll close with that. So let's let's pray, and then we'll be getting ready for the service. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together already this morning. Thank you for your word. Help us to live out these truths. Pray you bless the service now to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start the service in about 15 minutes. Thank you for being here.